Thank you for listening to this Podcast One production. Now available on Apple Podcasts, Podcast One, Spotify, and anywhere else you get your podcasts. Hello, everyone. This is Eagles Hall of Fame quarterback Ron Jaworski, and I am so excited to bring you the hottest new podcast for the NFL and gaming. Welcome to Jaws Picks, featuring me, Ron Ron Jaworski, Jaworski, and some of the most famous names in sports, music, and entertainment, as I give you my expert analysis and predictions of each and every NFL game. (coughs) So far this season, my predictions are over 55% correct, against against the spread. That's a pretty good number, folks. And over 67% picking winners straight Straight up. up. You do not want to miss out on this podcast. Every week, I will tell you who, how, and why each NFL game will be decided. <coughs> Take the guesswork and stress out of gaming and subscribe to Jaws Picks wherever you get your podcast. That's Jaws Picks wherever you get your podcast. Stay safe, take care, and let's make some beer money. <coughs> Welcome to Real GM Radio. I am Daniel, your host, and so happy to have you with us for this episode. My guest is the great Sam Vecini of The Athletic, NBA draft expert, and we had to cover a lot of ground here because not only did Sam and I talk in depth about the 2020 draft, which was just completed, but we also go through his favorite prospects for 2021, this really exciting class because college basketball is just starting up right now, including the players to watch and which teams he think if, thinks, if you have a limited amount of time, are best to keep an eye on. And then also we talk a little bit about the 2020 offseason and w- takeaways from that and everything else. So it was a really great conversation, well over an hour, and I hope you really enjoy it. Thank you so much for coming on. Danny, I'm always happy to be here. It is a privilege to join you and talk 2020 NBA draft. 2021 or 2020 2021 free agency 2021 nba draft everything is so condensed now that we have to talk about nine things on this podcast so yeah uh, i'm pumped to jump through there is not really a way to talk about one thing and we will do our best to kind of get through get through everything kind of in 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 its stead and the place I kind of wanted to start, I mean, there are a lot of things to talk about with the 2020 draft, but for me, the thing that was most stunning, as somebody who didn't know the nuances of this, and I know like you and John Cavoni and everybody else is working through your mock drafts, and you have a lot better intel from teams than I do, is not who was taken at any given pick. That, of course, has its things. But that there sure. wasn't a draft day, like what I consider a draft day trade, meaning, you know, like of the pick, the team was on the clock or something like that, until 17 with Pogoshevsky. Yep. Like everything else was just teams taking it. And a lot of that, that can go, it can go in different directions when a draft has a different perceived strength or weakness. But I was stunned by that. I was also pretty surprised. I mean, look, like people like, John and I have been writing for a while that we thought that this draft had potential to get a little bit crazy at the top. And ultimately, (laughs) what ended up occurring was that nobody wanted the picks at the end of the day. Nobody wanted to be the team that had to take Anthony Edwards, LaMelo Ball, James Wiseman at number one, number two, number three. Uh, Not because those guys are bad players necessarily, but they're not the typical number one, number two, number three overall picks in a draft. So the value that teams like Minnesota and Golden State were getting offered in trades was ultimately just not enough for them to make deals. And 
Yeah, it's I think that my for instance, like with Minnesota, I think my price point probably would have been lower than what Gerson Rosas's ended up being. And I probably would have agreed to move down you know, from one to three, from one to five, one to four, uh, whoever was willing to do that for uh, even like a lottery protected first rounder which I can't imagine that teams weren't offering like that low of a price. Right. So I I probably would have had a lower price point, but I'm not wholly surprised that teams were not eager to move up the board in this draft, I guess. Yeah. I, I, and, and that is a, that is a real challenge, which is, and it can kind of come from both directions, which is if the team's holding top picks, kind of stay to the normal returns of those selections, then they were never going to get a trade. Or it could have just been that other teams didn't want to move up. And so, yeah, that there wasn't that kind of the idea that they could calibrate a value and, and do it. And also just that maybe there wasn't as much as I expected of players like within a tier or kind of close to that of a team saying, we really like this guy better than everybody else. And, and the more even your board is the less likely you are to make a trade. Yeah, no question. I mean, you get to those top three guys, which look, I mean, they were the consensus top three guys, but NBA teams were all over the map on them. Like it wasn't just a no brainer. Um, we have LaMelo ball in our top three. I talked to teams that had them kind of all over the place. Just like I talked to teams that, uh, had Anthony Edwards, uh, outside of the top three, I would say Edwards was probably the closest thing to consensus that I talked to teams about just because they were like, yeah, his upside is, it makes it too hard for us not to have, not to have him in the top five, but Yeah, I mean, it's a tricky, it was a tricky draft this year. And, you know, like you said, there were a lot of players in that next tier. Basically, I had no players in tier one this year. I had those three guys in tier two. And then tier three, I had, I think, from four to 11. So if you think like I did, that those guys were all relatively close in value and kind of like you've said, uh, you know, earlier in this conversation, it just really wasn't a deal where teams were willing to sky up and down the board in order to get the guys that they like. I mean, we saw some some teams like Atlanta, for instance, they traded for Clint Capella uh, and moved the number what ended up being the number 19 over or no number number 17 overall pick in this draft for Capella and then turn around and take Onyeka Okongwu because at the end of the day. They felt best about a Kongwu turning into a good player. There weren't, uh, there wasn't as much worry about positional overlap. You know, the Wizards took Rui Achimura last year, and Denny Avdia is essentially the same kind of point forward positional. I think that they have complementary skills in a lot of ways that are going to allow them to play together. But I think teams were less worried about finding a positional fit and more about just finding the guy that they felt most confident in. Uh, on their board turning into a solid rotational level NBA player. Yeah, and I think you could make a, a similar argument with Patrick Williams. He doesn't overlap as much, but I think they, they that Karnishevis thought that he was the best player and, and just took him. And the rise of Patrick Williams is another stunner because, I mean, remember he was six man six man on the Florida State team as a as freshman, one of the youngest guys in this draft class. They play in a bridge season. After that bridge season, he moves into the lottery and then ends up going fourth. Yeah, the Pat Williams thing's interesting. I had Williams at number 10, uh, so I wasn't quite as high as the Bulls were. And the more that you watched his tape, the more that you got it. 
And another thing that I think really helped Pat Williams was just what happened in the bubble. I think that teams in general this year really looked at the bubble and tried to figure out what are the trends? Where is the game going? And for instance, someone like a Jeremy Grant, right? Jeremy Grant makes, you know, a crazy amount of money in free agency and it was on the back of a terrific NBA playoffs for Denver. They were looking at guys like that and thinking, hey, you know, these guys who are a little bit raw are coming into the league, even if they're six foot eight, six foot nine, have real athleticism, know how to play, for instance, like a Pat Williams, uh, these guys are going to have value, even if they don't reach their fullest potential, because guys who know where to be defensively, guys who can you know, make some live dribble passes as a teenager, guys who can uh, at least have a projectable jump shot, uh, even if it doesn't get to the point where he's a high-level shooter, uh, he's still going to be a valuable NBA player. And I think that that's kind of what it comes down to for you know a team like Chicago or a team like... You know, I'm tr- I'm trying to think off the top of my head. Uh, I should probably pull up like the draft order now. It's so far out of my head, even though it just happened like a week and a half, two weeks ago, just because I'm now moving on to like the 2021 class. Um, you know, a, a team like a, uh, you know, Aaron Naismith going 14 or, you know, frankly, Phoenix, I would imagine taking uh, Jalen Smith at 10, even though I don't really have this valuation on Jalen Smith. I'd imagine that their thought is that, you know, he can play the four, we can play him uh, in the forward line and he can have value as a player who uh, is athletic and can, you know, be multi-positional for us. Uh, You know, Patrick Williams, certainly a better example of that. Isaac Okoro, certainly a better example of that. But you saw a lot of multi-positional guys go higher in this draft than what they've gone in recent drafts. Uh, Precious Acha was another one that I think Miami probably thinks is multi-positional at the four or five. Uh, Sadiq Bay from the three and the four. Josh Green, two and the three, and maybe even be able to guard ones and fours. Uh, you know, uh, there are just guys kind of all over the map, I think. And uh, the bubble kind of replaced the NCAA tournament this year uh, in regard to the, you know, small sample size theater. Uh, let's overreact to the last thing that we saw, uh, you know, kind of ball game that you typically see when it comes to the NBA draft. That's a great point. And I watched less of Williams than most guys I evaluated. It was like kind of even not even a full partial scout for me, but I ended up having him, of the guys I scouted, which is not everybody, I ended up having him fifth on my board and what over a Coro. And what I like about Williams, I think that he, you know, there's this interesting argument, like, I think he kind of has a worse base than a Coro in terms of, like, skill level and a Coro's, like, the, the defensive acumen and all that kind of stuff. But what Williams has is, I, I, I think his frame has the ability to put on size. And, like, you think about these big wings that are such an important structural component. You brought up the bubble. I think that's why this is so adept. And there's a group of guys that kind of can hold their own. And then there's a group of guys that ideally can do more than that, that can really, you know, like, affect things a little bit more. And I'm not saying Williams is necessarily going to be one of those guys. I haven't watched enough film. Also, his feet aren't great. But... He gives you a chance. Like, if it works out, if you believe in your player development staff, maybe Williams gets there. And that, there's value in that. I mean, you and I talk about the idea that the team should just go heavily after wings instead of everything else almost every year. Just yep. because even if they – two things. One, their scarcity is, is, is notable and persistent. And two, you can use 
a, ca- a rotation-capable wing you can fit in a wider variety of circumstances than other things just because they, by virtue of being lower usage, fit, you know, they can kind of check more boxes. And so maybe even if Williams isn't a starting caliber player in two years, and, and we don't know that he's going to be or isn't going to be, you can still, you know, you need guys who can defend on the perimeter, who can, you know, hit an open jump shot, who can do a little bit with the ball in their hands. Sure, by all means. Yeah, and I'll be honest, I think a big part of what Chicago is thinking with Pat Williams is that they think he does have the kind of high-level star upside mixed with this uh, kind of inherent floor due to being a wing, right? Uh, You watch Pat Williams, you see some really interesting stuff, you know, as a pull-up mid-range shooter, right? You see some stuff as a... you know, live dribble passer going baseline, being able to grab the ball with his left hand and uh, whip it cross corner, or whip it cross wing for an open three pointer for a teammate. Like there are some very real, very interesting skills there for Pat Williams where you can squint and go, OK, if this guy really develops well. He has a shot to be a star. I I think I would be a little bit surprised if he got there. I wouldn't be wholly surprised, but I think I'd be a little bit surprised if he got all the way there. But you look at someone who has this level of skill and this ability to play potentially on ball while also having a high floor as a uh, team defender, because he's a really good team defender who can make a lot of uh, weak side reads and strong rotations. And he's a really good, uh, you know, on ball defender against threes, fours and fives. I do agree with you that he has kind of slow feet, which is a concern long term for his ability to defend wings. But, you know, maybe you can thin his body out and maybe uh, simultaneously kind of add weight to him while, you know, maintaining that strength and adding like a little bit of lateral quickness. You know, NBA teams and trainers and personal trainers and dietitians can do wonders with NBA players now in a lot of different ways. So there's there's a real upside there and I get why they took him there. I wouldn't have taken him over Isaac Okoro because I think that you can say similar things about Isaac Okoro and that he is, you know, maybe just slightly smaller than Pat Williams. You know, he's six six with like a six ten wingspan, whereas Pat Williams is six eight with a seven foot wingspan. But I think Okoro's ability as a driver on the ball and his ability to maneuver around defenders at the basket and his athletic explosiveness uh, mixed with quickness. I I think he's just kind of a different level athlete than Patrick Williams while also having many of the same, you know, on ball passing ability and on ball uh, creation ability with similar questions about the jump shot going forward. That's totally fair. Uh, One of the surprising parts of watching Williams' film as somebody who is unfamiliar was that he had a ton of turnovers, but a lot of them were him being put in situations like basically entrusted with the ball and decision-making that would never happen in the NBA, where... You know, like he's just, they're just like, oh, you're going to do initiate the offense. It's like, DMA is not going to have Pat Williams initiate the offense. Like that's not, that's not going to be something that happens very, unless he earns it, you know, unless he steps up to that level. Now I like the kind of complimentary playmaking that Okoro has. I think that could end up being useful. You know, that I always talk about his two dribbles and a good decision. I think he can do, Okoro can do more than that. That'll be interesting to see. Uh, and, and also I like those kind of like stable wings. I'm happy yeah. that both of them went over, like, I'm not as high on top of an Avdia as, as some, I think, I, I can't remember where you ended up on those guys. And just also specifically for the Cavs and the Bucks, like the Cavs, there was the rumors that they were going after both those guys. And Okoro, 
just being a like a solid player at a position that is not only scarce in the league but also on their roster is wonderful. Yeah, no question. I mean, I had a Coro ahead of both Denny and um, Obi. I think I had both of them slightly ahead of Patrick Williams because I think that they're just a lot more polished and more likely to maintain trade value early in their careers than Pat Williams is. And that's like a huge part of this, this year as well. I'm not saying this is like a throwaway draft necessarily, but you know, you you get into 2021's draft and it, it is not an exaggeration to say that there are five to seven players that would have gone number one in this draft in the 2020 draft that are coming in the 2021 draft. You look at guys like um, Cade Cunningham, Jalen Green, Jonathan Kaminga, Evan Mobley, I think would have a really good shot to go number one. Jalen Suggs looks incredible for Gonzaga so far and looks like I had him uh, a little bit too low. I really like Keon Johnson at Tennessee. Um, you know, you can go up and down the board and just be like, this 2020 draft was not the reasonable level of talent that you would expect from a normal draft. That's not to say that there won't be good players because there certainly will be good players. And I actually quite liked the depth in the 2020 NBA draft from guys that are going to contribute, uh, that were taken from 20 to 48 or so, but it's just kind of a different ball game. And I think that it's important to keep it into context to remember that you're probably these teams that picked in the top 10 probably should not be anticipating to get the typical value that you get from a top 10 pick. Uh, And the longer that they can kind of string along that value uh, equation, hopefully through early production from someone like an Obi Toppin or someone like a Denny Avdia, the longer you can keep up that charade, that facade, it might be very helpful uh, in returning value because there are just so many different ways that you can improve a team now outside of just the NBA draft, right? That's a fascinating idea, and there could be there could be merit to it, especially on the idea that there's so much uncertainty every year. You know, especially now that I don't get to watch as much of the prospects as I as I used to. You know, when I was kind of like coming up and all this, and I kind of think of in a different idea, and like so sometimes it's been wings or various different things. And for me, watching the players this year, you know, only getting really a look at about ten guys in this class. What I kind of ended up using as a major differentiator was do they have like NBA caliber athleticism? Like, do, do, like will yeah. this player be able to, what will they be, advantages will they be able to yield and what will be leveraged against them? And that that is a very yep. important distinct distinction. Now, that is not everything you can think about. There are lots of NBA caliber athletes that have failed and there are plenty of players that aren't that have succeeded. But as a general sorting mechanism, like it's it's kind of an easier bet to make. I think you and I talked about that before the draft. And so I was thinking about that. For me, that was the differentiator with, with Avdia in particular. Not a terrible athlete by any stretch. But no. that, it's it's just a challenge. And then with Toppin, it's interesting because he is, Toppin is a great example in in the same concept, but a very different example of Luka, of Luka Doncic of like, athleticism is not one thing and like there is this idea that athleticism is running and jumping and Obi Toppin you know like his end-to-end speed is shockingly good and he can he can jump great vertical athlete but I was not impressed with his lateral film at all like and and he also like some of the defensive reactions and decisions whereas Luca like you know he's reasonably fast end-to-end but not like ludicrous or anything close to that but 
he makes really quick decisions. He has great hand-eye and has good positional size. And so you think about all of the different parts of being an NBA-caliber athlete, and very few people check every box. There aren't that many LeBron James in the world. But that, like, because it's kind of like that's the bet I'll make. If I have to, if I have to pick a, to me, uh, well, this is probably the better way of putting it. If I'm drafting a below average athlete, especially the further below average you get, I the thing that if I were running a front office that I would be having to ask is, what is this guy so good at that he that they'll be undeniable for that? And so they could be maybe, oh, they're an unbelievable passer, or they have a very versatile jump shot, or it doesn't matter how good an athlete is, he's seven feet and he puts his hands up. Like there are lots of things that a player can do, but that is the to me they need a calling card if they're going to get selected hot. Yeah, and you know, you you bring up the idea of Toppin, right? Like for me, that calling card for Obi is he's going to enter the NBA as a very 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 high level pick and roll, pick and pop big man just from the jump, right? Like he, the way that he is able to move with such speed, such explosiveness, such uh such bounce is he kind of loads up to leap for lobs while also being able to bring versatility. He is a really high level short role player because he can put the ball on the deck once or twice and drive to the basket to finish, or he can put the ball on the deck once and make a live dribble pass off of a short roll uh, when he's taking advantage of a four on three. And then on top of it, I think he's going to shoot it. Like there's not really a reason that I've seen to make me think he's not going to be, uh, you know, a 35 to 38% three point shooter uh, on pick and pops because he has a very clean release. He has good touch. Uh, you know, the numbers say what they say as well. So you mix all of that together and he's going to be a very productive offensive player. Like the comparisons to John Collins there are not wrong. Like they're really kind of accurate. They do very similar things, especially now that Collins has shown the ability to shoot the three. And frankly, like Obi Toppin might be more explosive than John Collins is athletically. Collins is a little bit bigger, but Obi is wildly explosive and just a crazy, crazy uh, run and jump athlete. I kind of think that it's going to be easy for him to maintain value given that backing at the end of the day. Like if Obi Toppin is averaging 16 points and eight rebounds a game in his second year, my guess is that you can probably move him for something valuable. Even if the defense is as bad as frankly, I think it's going to be because I I don't really buy him defensively. Like I think he's really going to struggle to move laterally. He's a real load level athlete who, for instance, whenever they played drop coverage, teams would just destroy him in pick and pops because his, uh, he really has to load into what he's doing. He's not light on his feet. So whenever he drops and then has to recover back out onto a pick and pop, he has to load for that split second and then get back out to try and contest. And that's just, it's too much time. It takes him too much time to do that. Then on top of it, he's not very flexible throughout his hips. He kind of struggles to move uh, laterally and then drop his hips. Uh, if someone blows by, he basically just always turns to uh, you know, try and contest from behind and turns and runs and tries to block the shot from behind. So there are real concerns here defensively. Like I, I don't really buy it, but 
I'm just kind of betting on the fact that there are enough NBA teams that value points and rebounds that he's going to be someone that gets points and rebounds and thus will be someone who kind of maintains trade value long term. Something striking about the Toppin-Collins comparison is that Toppin is basically five months younger than John Collins. <laughs> right. And they're very similar in age. It's it's why, because because of Toppin's unusual path to this point. What concerns me a little bit, I think that your theory of him as an offensive player is it's certainly possible. I think that it, it will take a little bit of time. I mean, it's... Toppin's shot does look projectable to three point to the NBA three line. I, I, when I watched him shoot the longer ones, it looked fine. He's big enough and strong enough. Like I think a lot of guys, you know that that especially now that the college line is further back, we're getting a better calibrator there. What concerns me a little bit with Toppin as a role guy is if he is so bad defensively that you have to play a center next to him. And I mean, functionally, that's what's going to happen on the Knicks this year, whether it's good or bad, just because they have Mitchell Robinson and Nerlens Noel doesn't look like either of those guys is going anywhere. Is that do you have two kind of questions? So one is how much pick and roll are you going to run with your four as opposed to your five? And then the other one is rolling as a power forward. And this is something that that Atlanta has dealt with at times and is going to actually have more of a problem with this year is that rolling when you're doing it with your four is a challenge because unless your five can shoot, that's going to be another guy that's kind of close. This is the same reason I'm opposed to what New Orleans did with Steven Adams next to next to Zion, is that if you're running those actions with a guy who, and the other there's somebody else on the floor who can't shoot who's going to be standing around the basket, it, it just gives the defense an out. And that doesn't mean it's like a failure or, oh, it's definitely not going to work, but it, it's a different yeah. challenge. And then so... Toppin and point guard X for the Knicks, those guys are going to have to finish through a forest a little bit more often. Yeah, no, I actually really strongly agree with you on that. I just wonder how long Mitchell Robinson is for New York. To be that's honest. possible too. Like, uh, that's not to say that I think Obi Toppin is like a definite better player than Mitchell Robinson either. It's just that Mitchell Robinson's going to get expensive next year, uh, especially if they decide to. You know, if I was them, like. You basically have to – does he have a player option in year four, right? Or a team option, I'm sorry. So you basically have to decline the team option there in year four so you get his restricted rights to either trade him or to sign him longer term because that's really the only way that they can hold on to the asset value that is Mitchell Robinson. So he's going to get expensive in a hurry, and I would imagine that there are teams out there that are going to be willing to give Mitchell Robinson, I don't know, between 12 and $15 million next year like it could be way more if he really blows up but he's shown enough already to where he's going to get expensive in a hurry and as you're a rebuilding team i don't really want to spend that kind of money on the center position like i i just don't think it's all that valuable to spend you know uh what four year 56 million dollar contract on a center right that's exactly why the Knicks need to really know what they have in Robinson by the end of this season, assuming that they still, Leon Rose in the front office, still have things that they need to learn. Because if Robinson is that guy, if he can be a, a, a defensive force, I still really like his defensive potential. And maybe he's a rim runner or, you know, like you could think about various different offensive roles that work for him. Great. If he's not at that level, as you said, that creates real challenges. You probably want to move him at or before the deadline. And what does that other team think they're getting? How valuable are having his bird rights and restricted rights, assuming that they want to do the structure that you talked about, which I would support. 
And so you need to kind of get all that there. And that's a little bit of a concern for me that they sign Nerlens Noel, who is more accomplished, who could potentially be a better player right now. And with Tibbs, that's a real a real challenge. Is like, is does Thibodeau have the kind of, I guess you could call it kind of like a reverse green light from the front office to say, the most important thing for us is to evaluate the young guys that we have. And we might lose more games that way. We're not going to fire you because of it. Yeah, I think that that's definitely my concern is just did they hire the right coach for where they are situationally going forward? Uh, I'm not real sure yet. I I think that it's going to require it's going to require the Knicks front office to just be very honest with where they are. Like, are they trying to learn what they have with the young guys or are they trying to compete as soon as possible and win 10 more games than they won last year in order to show free agents? Hey guys, we're on the up. Like we're moving forward. It's a really great situation for you guys to enter. If you want to come and join the Knicks. I mean, like, what do I think is the right answer there? Just given the Knicks free agency past and given the fact that seemingly no one wants to go play for James Dolan, like, I kind of think that they should probably just learn what they have with the young guys this year, continue along the track of a, you know, a quote unquote normal small market rebuild, despite the fact that you're the New York Knicks. Uh and just continue to build that way. And once you get good, you should artificially start to bring in uh, better and better free agents that make more sense for where you are as an organization. So they're, they're in a very weird spot, despite the fact that they are like this big market New York Knicks uh, franchise. Like, I think that their best bet is just to continue down the road of um, like developing this slower term. Yeah, and that that what reminds me of the other kind of element, and the Lakers have benefited from this, and the Clippers are to an extent as well now, is big market teams benefit more the better they are, because then you can get good value for the minimum. And, you know, right now, that's not as yep. much of a sales pitch for the Knicks, because they're not that good, and they have cap space, and so they're paying guys more than that. And, but once you reach that point, then theoretically, they can get more for less money out of roster spots seven through 12 let's say and then they also like you could argue that the mid-level exception at one of those teams or something like that has more cachet because you know those guys it's kind of you know their money offers are pretty similar so you're looking for a situation and market and all that kind of stuff and so we'll have to see the dicks aren't at that point yet but eventually they could get those benefits and like the clippers were terribly run for years and now they're better run and we'll see we'll see how that continues yeah, no question. Yeah. Like I think that we're just in a in a space with the Knicks where they should be rebuilding. But you know, to to the original point, like yeah, I agree with you. I don't necessarily love the Ob Top and Mitchell Robinson fit. I just want to see where this goes with <laughs> the Knicks. And like honestly, they're in a place where I don't know that they should really be like drafting based off of position. Because I would imagine that front office thinks that R.J. Barrett probably has some equity as a potential lead ball handler. So I don't know that you necessarily needed to draft a lead ball handler in this class. Uh, I don't know that you well, should avoid it, the big position because you have Mitchell Robinson. Like it's it's a weird – they're in a weird spot. They are in a weird spot. And the other consideration I don't want to jump to 21 now is that I think the 21 class from what I've heard has a lot of guys who could potentially do that. And so – 
taking somebody who you think might be lesser when you have one option on the table and you might be getting another one in a year that that is a that is an important consideration as well though i you know go best prospect available no matter what if the guys end up being good you'll figure it out yeah and i'm even kind of the opposite of that like as we've talked about before like i really think that in applicable situations it helps guys developmentally to draft for fit and draft for um draft for high level developmental situations that foster improvement among a group of players like i think we're going to see that with atlanta this year like i think that even in addition to their free agency uh additions that was really terrible english um even in in addition to their free agency moves the young guys i think were just in a real position to get better last year like cam reddish throughout the season he got better last year and i think it was in part because they had a competent roster around him once kevin herter got healthier and you know as trey young continued to get better and uh you know deandre hunter got better throughout the course of last year like i think it's a really really important they're going to get internal development from guys and they're going to get the external additions that they added this year like i think atlanta is going to be a playoff team this year they're really good but in the knicks case you have to have that centerpiece that is trey young for the hawks in place first and then you figure out the rest as soon as you get that guy in there first then you kind of figure out what you have. I think they hopefully think RJ Barrett is that guy, but RJ hasn't proven it yet. So they need to, um, I think continue to take swings on what is the best way to get that guy. Agreed. Let's kind of go a little bit big picture with 2020 before we move on to 21 and just thinking about it more in terms of the whole thing that they did. Are there any teams that really stand out to you as having a particularly strong draft or a particularly weak one? Well, you know, it's funny, like the 76ers, I thought, did exceptionally well, but like a lot of the 76ers moves had very little to do with drafting players, right? Uh, you know, they, they decide to move Josh Richardson in number 36 for Seth Curry in that while I didn't love that deal for them, it does give them another shooter to pair with someone in Ben Simmons that has created more three-point looks for his teammates than any other player in the NBA, I believe, over the course of the last couple of years. Uh, The big one that they do is obviously getting uh, Al Horford out of there and adding Danny Green and Terrence Ferguson, I guess, on some level. But I thought that the way that they reshaped their roster without having to give up a crazy amount of value was really, really smart. And then on top of that, they take Tyrese Maxey at 21. And I really like Maxey. I like the value at number 21. I like the fit there because he's very creative. Uh, You can kind of, if he can shoot, which, you know, there are questions about, let's be honest. Uh, If he can shoot, things get really interesting there for them in a hurry because they can theoretically play him as the small ball or as like the one uh, who defends opposing ones because he's a really good point of attack defender because he's strong and has good feet while also being more of a two offensively because Ben Simmons hopefully can carry some of the load uh, as a distributor, playmaker, ball handler. Do you trust Maxie's jump shot enough for that to work? I do. Uh, I think he has the low release point, but he's a hard worker. He is like a universally like great kid. Uh, really, really smart kid, really engaging personality. Uh, also doesn't really have fear. Like it seemed to me at times last year, like Philadelphia 
they didn't have someone that wanted to take the shot other than Joel. And in Joel's case, getting the shot often involves like a post up, right? They didn't have a perimeter guy that really wanted to take that shot. I think Tyrese can develop into that guy. In terms of the mechanics, yeah, it's a low release point, but he has really, really good touch on floaters. He has really, really good touch from the mid-range area. I think he's going to continue to be able to step back that range and get to the point where he is a good three-point shooter. I don't really... I know he shot 29% from three this year, but like you go back to high school, he was like a pretty consistent 35% three point shooter over the course of four years there. Interesting. Yeah. I just haven't watched enough film on, on Maxi to, to know that yet. Um, the, so the guy, uh, you know, of the like 10 or so that I watched film on that felt that things were most disparate from where I had them was, was Tyrese Halliburton. I had him fourth on my board of the limited sure. board and he fell to twelve. Now, when Michael Porter Jr. fell, that was clearly injury-based, and you know he also you know hadn't played much at Missouri, all that kind of stuff. Do you have a theory for Halliburton? It might have just been the team's draft boards were more even, and they had like one guy hiring him of, of how that happened. Yeah, I think that CAA and Halliburton orchestrated it a little bit <laughs> to a certain point. Uh, I was told Atlanta was very interested, and I think that they'd have been happy to end up in Atlanta. Um, if you kind of run through the teams that Halliburton worked out through though, like it seemed like, you know, didn't really go to Phoenix, uh, you know, didn't go to, uh, I'm trying to think who else I need to pull up the 2020 NBA draft board again. Um, but like didn't go to work out at like a few places and like, didn't do like crazy amounts of meetings with like some teams in the middle there in order to try to like facilitate a spot that they were comfortable with uh, with Sacramento. Um, Sacramento makes a lot of sense for them. Uh, he is a guy that uh, is kind of a perfect secondary ball handler for De'Aaron Fox is more of a scoring guard because he's so unselfish, so smart with ball in hand, makes such rapid decisions, but can also play off the catch because while the jump shot looks to be kind of a mess off the bounce, I do think he can shoot it off the catch. And then on top of it, whenever De'Aaron Fox sits, Halliburton can run the show a little bit and play next to Buddy Heald and provide some of the ball handling and passing ability that Buddy Heald uh, doesn't necessarily bring to the table. So, yeah, I mean, I had Halliburton at, I think, seven on my board. I think it's a tremendous pick from Sacramento. I think they did exceptionally well, but I, I think that it was – kind of a situation where they were hoping to get to Sacramento, which is a bit of a departure from the norm, right? Yeah. But when you consider, you know, some of the other situations and maybe he would have been behind a couple guys and there are also, you know, I fully support prospects, especially because they're structurally underpaid due to the rookie scale, using the small beats of leverage that they have, like not working out with teams, not giving the medicals to have some control. Now, a lot of times they're sacrificing money to do that, or maybe you fall even further than you thought. That can happen too. But by all means, if, if, if whether it's Sacramento, whether it's whoever, you know, and, and I'm sure there's some fear that they, that at times that could get to fall to big market teams and then, or, you know, like teams that are already good that have picks and then it's the rich getting richer and then you get the, you know, the, the rights for designated rookie, designated veteran, all that fun stuff. But generally speaking, I think it's a, it's a very good idea under the current format and kudos to Hal Burton and his representation for doing that. If that's what they really wanted, I think that's a good thing. The next avenue that i thought was really interesting in this draft especially once we got past the guys that i knew which was pretty quick was 
the big men going really early. Oh, and some of that was in some of the, you know, you could argue that started with Isaiah Stewart or with Jalen Smith, depending on how you want to call uh, class. No, it, it definitely started with Jalen Smith at 10. Cause Jay, look, Phoenix thinks Jalen Smith is a four from what I gather. Um, like they, they think he's not just a pure five and is going to be able to play next to Deandre Ayton. And like, Look, there's a world where I think that can happen, but I don't agree with that assessment necessarily. Um, you can even maybe say Obi Toppin at eight, but Obi Toppin, I think, was always considered more likely to go somewhere in the top 10. Jalen Smith was a stunner, uh, and I think that it's definitely the jumping off point is Jalen Smith started this crazy run on bigs. Yeah, and then so you had Isaiah Stewart. You could I, I think of it too as kind of a different thing. Zeke Naji. Azabuki, and then the run on guys in the second round, including the including the Hornets taking two, <laughs> taking Vernon yeah. Carey and taking uh, Nick Richards from Kentucky, and that was really that was really surprising to me. I mean, you and I have spent so much time harping on the idea that that non elite big men are the most fungible commodities in the entire NBA. That doesn't mean they're all created equal. Doesn't mean everybody works everywhere. But just to see that straight up run on on those guys over the course of the draft was striking. Yeah. <laughs> um <laughs> I there were a lot of bigs that went five plus places away from where I had them on my board and five spots lower, I mean. Like I even don't really mind the Isaiah Stewart pick because I love everything that Isaiah Stewart is. Uh, he works incredibly hard. I think he's going to shoot it from the three point line very quickly. Uh, you know, a guy that I think is going to be a good interior defender works his ass off on the court is a great kid off the court. Like Isaiah Stewart is going to play in the NBA for a decade. And once you get outside of the lottery, finding a guy that is going to play in the NBA for that long is fine. Right. I still had Isaiah Stewart at like 24 on my board and I love Isaiah Stewart and I still couldn't really get him much higher than that. Uh, Precious Achua, I had at 25. Zeke Naji, I had at like 34. He goes 22. Uh, Yudoka Azubuke, I had at 44. He goes, or maybe 42 or something. He goes 27. Um, there's another one here. Who's the, who's the other big I'm missing that went in the first round? Maybe there's not another one. But Vernon Carey, I had a two-way grade on, and he goes 32. Aturu, I had it like 39 or 40. He goes 33. I liked Tillman a little bit more than a lot of these bigs. He actually went lower than where I had him, but uh, that was more based on the fact that he is just one of the smartest basketball players in this draft, and I tend to really value high-level field guys. Mm -hmm. Nick Richards is another guy I had you know, probably 20 spots lower. Marco Simonovic is another guy I had 20 spots lower than where he was taken. Um, all of these bigs going as high as they did, I, it, I just... I get that you have to take guys that you think are NBA players and that you select player, you select guys where the talent is, right? Like you select based off of who is talented enough to play in the NBA. And I don't mean to just like hate on all of these guys, right? Because there are some really talented players here. But like Yudoka Azubuke, for instance, 
I'm not really sure I see a world where he's anything other than like a situational center. He can't shoot free throws, so it's going to be really hard to close with them. Like he can't uh, make any sort of passing read whatsoever. I get that he's a high level rim protector. I advocated for him to win defensive player of the year in college basketball this year, but I don't think he's going to defend in space. Like, I don't think that um, he's going to be anything other than like a dive guy and the pick and roll offensively. These guys, you can find, you can find these guys anywhere. Whereas someone like Desmond Bain, like Joe Harris just got $75 million in free agency. Uh, you know, you can go up and down like NBA free agency and see that shooters are getting paid. Duncan Robinson exploded this year. Uh, you know, Jay Crowder just got 330 in free agency. And I think that a lot of people think that's one of the best deals in free agency, uh, you know, despite the fact that he's getting $10 million a year. So like, I just can't wrap my head around why teams don't see the NBA draft as more of an avenue to get guys who can be genuine difference makers versus guys who are just going to play in the NBA. Like Zeke Naji is going to play in the NBA probably for 10 years. I don't really know that he's going to be like a high level difference maker. Desmond Bain, like, okay, let's say the defense doesn't translate. He still probably plays in the NBA because he's a 40% three point shooter and at least can hold his own defensively. Uh, If he hits though, let's say that there's a 30% chance he hits. He's a starter. He's an absolutely guaranteed starter at a position that is exceptionally hard to find on the free agency market. Typically, Um, you know, Robert Woodard is another example of this. Like Robert Woodard is very raw. Robert Woodard is also six foot eight with a seven foot three wingspan is already very, very good defensively uh, and has already showcased some real shooting potential. If you think there's even a 30% chance that those skills are going to translate, that the shooting and the defense is going to translate, and I think they are, you have to take that guy in the top 25. Like finding guys with translatable skills at that size is just really, really hard. And once you get past the lottery, like I get that teams just want to find NBA players, but I mean, I want to find wings. I want to find guys that can be, you know, real rotational level difference makers, not even stars, but like guys that you can play around stars and who can really, really help to open the floor for your stars to have a better career. Well, and I'll expand it. So there's a great point there and I want to get back to it, but also even having depth of point guard, you know, like Trey Jones fell to 41 and uh, like yep. some of these other guys. And it's like, okay, you need 48 minutes of that position. Maybe you, like it's, it's different than the bigs because they're, the supply is a little bit more limited, especially if you're looking for them to be reliable creators. But the point on wings is incredibly well taken. And, and I think that it is there is a difference between player quality and expected value. And I don't mean value in the sense of like player player quality times time or whatever. It's also scarcity and importance of role and everything else. And so yep. as you said, if it's a one in three chance of a guy being a rotation player in a position of real need, like I would take that over a non starting center all the time. Because who has a even if that non starting center has like an eighty five even if that like NBA player has a chance, uh, if that center has like an 85% chance to be an NBA player, right? Like it's still just, 
it's not nearly as worthwhile uh, if you think that guy is just a rotational big. It's just not even close. Like the value you derive from the wing position is so much greater. It is so much, so much more important to find guys who can stick on the court on the on the wing than it is at the center position now. Right. And I think the general arc is going to continue going in that direction, which is a important dynamic to consider when you think about kind of where the league is going and that we're, we're needing more wings and the supply is not necessarily growing and need going to need fewer bigs. And that supply is, I wouldn't necessarily say it's growing, but it's, it's not, it's not dissipating. We, we, we're pretty confident in that. Supply and, has not yet exceeded demand of wings in yes. the NBA. Like we are getting more and more wings in, in the 2021 draft, which I'm sure we'll talk about at some point here. Like we're going to get a big influx of wings in that class, but supply even then still will not have exceeded the demand the coaches have for being able to put versatile lineups out on the court. So yeah, it's, it's tough for me, man. Like I don't, I, I get what teams are doing, but I don't really love it. Let's jump to the 2021 class, and you've already done a, a really useful early mock draft that came out about a week ago for The Athletic, and this idea that you already articulated during this podcast of how much stronger the top end of 21 is than the 2020 class, and star-level star talents, whether they cash or not, they're the, the really the accelerator in the NBA. They're what make good teams great, what makes great teams championship teams what makes what brings a bad team out of the doldrums as we were talking about with the Knicks earlier and we know not all of them are going to succeed and thrive as as NBA pros but it's so exciting to have a group that has a lot of guys with that potential yeah no question I think that you know you, you can look at someone like Cade Cunningham who is just absolutely one of my favorite prospects that I've evaluated I'm doing this this will what this will be my eighth draft doing this professionally um, and Cade Cunningham is just up there, uh, for me, he's probably not, he's not the next Luka Doncic, but like, he's probably the closest thing I've evaluated as like a big ball handling point guard who just knows how to use his frame and can finish it at an exceedingly high level at the basket and, you know, can make every passing read. Like these guys are incredibly, incredibly valuable. And Cade Cunningham is not alone in this class. Jalen Green is an insane athlete. Uh, Jonathan Kaminga is like a six foot seven, you know, hyper productive potential creator who is uh, really quickly developing a jump shot. Uh, and if that happens, it's going to be really, really interesting to see where he goes. Uh, even someone like Jalen Johnson, who I had at number 19 on my board, I'm probably too low on him right now, to be honest, like just, just being real with it. Like I probably placed him, you know, maybe five, six spots too low on my board. I, I should have him in the lottery. Uh, he's like a six foot eight kind of point forward who, yeah, I worry about the shot and I worry about the athleticism, but like, he's probably a little bit better than Denny Avdia is in terms of NBA projection. So like it's the, the level that this draft is better than the 2020 version. It, it, it's really just kind of staggering when it comes to potential stars and star level talent. I, I worry about the depth guys still. Like I'm not, not sure that this draft is going to have as much depth as the 2020 class did, but um, in terms of like overall value and star potential value, it's just like not even not even in question. So if I'm kind of parsing this correctly, 
Strong. So I usually do stars, starters, rotation players. Strong on sure. stars, potentially strong on starters, and then maybe weaker on rotation players. Yeah. Right now, I would say that's where I'm at on this. And, yeah. and look, we're going to get guys who really develop uh, throughout the college season and, you know, guys that pop up and become high level players. So the depth has a chance to take care of itself for sure. But like, I'm, you know, about to queue up a game with, uh, West Virginia and Western Kentucky, right? And one guy that I really like this year is Miles McBride. I kind of have been mentioning him a few different places. And, you know, there's a world where Miles McBride turns into like a super high level impact defender who can knock down shots at the point guard position and, you know, create some offense at a higher level as a passer. But right now he's just not quite there in terms of being able to do that. He might get there. And I think he will play in the NBA at some point. Uh, whether that's 2021, 2022, we'll see. But uh, there are guys in college that have potential to get there. We just haven't seen them yet necessarily. Yeah, and that's that's really kind of true in a, in a class like this. And like, I mean, I go back to, you know, I, I haven't seen a ton of these guys, but one of the players that I have going back, you know, pre-COVID, I went to the Team USA camp in Colorado Springs and my favorite player from that camp, not I'm not saying he was like the, but like if I would take him number one out of every guy I saw and that included Mobley and Chet Holmgren and a lot of other guys was Josh Christopher. And mm-hmm. Josh Christopher is 17th on your board. I'm not criticizing that at all. It's just like, that's how, no, I know. that's how this, like how this class looks. Yeah. Like I didn't rank Marcus Bagley, like just because I haven't seen a crazy amount of Marcus Bagley's over the last 18 months uh just to be honest right like there are a lot of guys uh that you have to evaluate and we got a bit of a condensed cycle this year for the 2020 recruiting class where's he where's he playing this year i'm sorry where's backley this year so he's at arizona state playing next to josh christopher okay and like the first game that they played against rhode island like marcus bagley popped man like he was better than Josh Christopher in that game. And then they just played today. And I know that Marvin ba- or Marcus Bagley played well in that game too. Christopher played, has played well in all three games as well. So like there are guys kind of all over the map this year. Isaiah Jackson's another guy at Kentucky where like, you know, I, I guess I saw a lot of him because he played on that Spire team with LaMelo ball, but like didn't see like it wasn't paying attention to him in that way. You know what I mean? And I mean, you watch these first two games that Kentucky's played and this guy's athleticism is just, it's different. Like it's the same kind of deal that we saw whenever Jackson Hayes was at Texas. where like guys that are six foot 11 with seven foot four wingspans should not move like that. And he has that kind of similar deal where he moves in a very different way. He's very raw and is a long way away from being able to play in an NBA game because he jumps for literally every single pump fake that has ever happened on planet earth. There are probably games happening at the bad boy event in South Dakota that Isaiah Jackson is falling for pump fakes. there, just as much as he's falling for pump fakes in Rupp arena right now, but Holy shit. Is that dude a crazy athlete who block shots and can slide his feet? It, it's just kind of a different, different dude. That's going to go somewhere in the first round. And like for pop-up guys to already be happening, you know, typically it takes me a little bit of time to want to adjust my board. Like I could adjust this thing right now if I wanted to and be like, oh, holy shit, like Jalen Suggs has gotten better since the last time I saw him. Oh, uh, Isaiah Jackson looks like a very real dude right now that we have to pay attention to. Jason Preston at Ohio uh, has really cut down on the turnovers and looks a lot more poised than what we've seen so far. So like 
it, it's this eight month layoff has thrown such a weird, interesting wrinkle into this 2021 process because you just don't know what guys are going to come back looking like whenever you haven't seen them for eight months playing basketball, uh, like at all because of COVID basically. That was a through line we saw in the NBA season as well in the bubble where, you know, there was kind of like an off season at which some guys really use their advantage and some guys, whether due to circumstances, maybe potentially even having COVID, they couldn't necessarily take advantage. And that wouldn't surprise me at all to see that with this with this draft class as well. Something I often ask you in this early stage, especially right now because the NBA season has not yet started, even the preseason has not yet started, is if somebody is more of an NBA fan than a college fan and yeah. wanted to watch a couple of teams to get a sense of kind of where things are, especially in this first stretch, let's say before Christmas is preferred, but the whole thing is, is fine. What teams would you kind of think, would you tell them to most seriously consider? So I would tell them early in the season, watch Gonzaga Mm -hmm. because Gonzaga like loaded up their schedule. They played Kansas already. They played Auburn already. They have Baylor coming up. They have Iowa coming up. Um, you know, they're, they're going to get a couple of other games, I think. Uh, and then on top of it, they also play in a WCC this year that's really good. And on top of that, this is Gonzaga's best team uh, since few has been there. Uh, I'm just going to straight up say it. That's, like, where, that's where Suggs is, right? Yeah. And that is where Jalen Suggs is. They have another potential first round pick in Corey Kispert as well. Uh, six foot seven shooter who hit 44% from three last year is already hitting 44% from three this year. Uh, looks just like an absolute monster uh, and forces like a spacing weapon. Uh, you know, I, I keep bringing up the name Joe Harris. Like I can't remember a guy that looked more like Joe Harris coming out of college than Corey Kispert. Um, they have Joel Ayayi as well. Who's like a, you know, he's somewhere probably in my top 75 as a prospect. Uh, Drew Timmy is like this six foot 10 big man who I'm not entirely sure what the fit is going to be in the NBA but has a very real chance to be a like first or second team all American this season. So this Gonzaga team is the best and most talented team that Mark few has had. They are, I really genuinely believe they have, uh, they have to get past Baylor here coming up and Baylor is one of the better teams in the country as well. They play Baylor, uh, I believe next Saturday, if they get past Baylor, I am not joking that I think that they are going to run the table. Wow. I think they are, going to go undefeated uh baylor has a real shot to beat them and they will like i said gonzaga will probably end up adding like a couple of non-conference games because such is the way that this season works where <laughs> wow you just kind of pick up games here and there like villanova just randomly decided to play virginia tech yesterday and ended up losing um but they are it's a different level of Gonzaga team this year like they are they dropped 102 on a Kansas team that uh, Ken Palm has like as a top five uh, defense coming into the year this year so it's they I can't I can't emphasize enough just watch Gonzaga they're going to be really fun Uh, obviously Kentucky Kentucky has two guys that I have in the top 10 right now and BJ Boston and Terrence Clark they also have the aforementioned Isaiah Jackson who uh, I think is got a real shot to go in the first round um Cade bunch of, so Oklahoma State kind of has to be on the list yeah no question Oklahoma State's going to be on the list just because Cade Cunningham is the most fun player uh to watch in college basketball this year 
just unbelievable. They play Marquette on Tuesday, and that's going to be a really fun one because Marquette has a few guys, uh, DJ Carton, Dawson Garcia, uh, guys that have a real shot to be pros as well. So I'm really, really excited to see uh, what Cade Cunningham kind of does against them. And both of those teams will have a tendency to play up and down basketball and really get after it. Um, you know, it's a good question. I, I would say that you'll get enough of the Big 12 just by watching Oklahoma State. The ACC is kind of a weird one this year. Like, I really like DJ Stewart uh, at Duke. Like I said, Jalen Johnson is, you know, a potential lottery pick. Matthew Hurt, uh, you know, came out and had a pretty solid game against Coppin State, had 12 points, seven rebounds. Um, you know, looks a little bit more bulked up this year. I think he's up to like 230. Wendell Moore is another one that NBA teams have told me they're uh, interested in seeing at the very least. But the ACC in general is pretty down uh you know like florida state doesn't necessarily like have the dudes uh this year other than scotty barnes uh and scotty barnes is a potential top 10 pick but like outside of him it's not like uh what we saw with florida state last year yeah uh louisville i think is actually like pretty drastically underrated uh they have one of the five or six best backcourts in the country in carly jones and david johnson uh samuel williamson as well as a really interesting fun player they have a couple of solid freshmen as well and dre davis and jj trainer that have caught my eye already um they're a good team, but like, you know, David Johnson's the guy there. I have him in my top 30 right now, but his role is kind of funky there because Carly Jones is like a 23 year old point guard and they're using David Johnson like within their this, like second side option uh, for them. And then North Carolina has Caleb Love, but uh, then just has like a ton of bigs with Dayron Sharp and Armando Baycott and Garrison Brooks. So you don't know how much Caleb Love is really going to get a chance to um, contribute as well. Walker Kessler as well, who might be the best upside guy out of those bigs at North Carolina. So uh, Clemson has Amir Sims. Like I think you'd just be best off just watching, you know, Duke and then pick a second ACC team maybe would be the way to go. Mm-hmm. Um, I-, I think I would probably pick i really like louisville but like i think i'd you know probably pick florida state if i was being honest just because they have scotty barnes and scotty barnes rules um in the big east i'm trying to think if like you really need to like dive super deep there i don't really think so uh you know the big 10 Iowa really loaded up its schedule this year. Like they play Gonzaga, they play North Carolina. um, They play Iowa state as well. And Iowa state has a couple of interesting kids. Like there, there's a world where Iowa is pretty fun to watch. Plus like Luca Garza is a pro prospect at the very least. If you told me he goes in round one in 2021, I don't think I'd be stunned just because his production is going to necessitate it on some level. Um, I I probably wouldn't take him there, but nonetheless, they also have Joe Wieskamp, who I actually like a little bit better as a pro prospect than Garza because he's like a six foot seven shooting wing who can really heat it up from distance. I like Illinois quite a bit. Uh, Illinois would be like a top five to 10 team for me this year. Uh, Io Desunmu is still there. They have a really interesting garden, Adam Miller. They have another interesting long-term garden, Andre Corbello. Uh, you know, Kofi Coburn's like the seven foot center that some people like, I don't know that I'm really quite there, but you know, college basketball talent this year is really spread out like across the map. 
in a way that makes it difficult to like just pick a couple of teams and just go from there. You know what I mean? Yeah, that can be a challenge. That happened a couple of years ago. I'm trying to remember what year that was. And then the other dynamic is the G League Ignite, you know, like that that having yeah. Kaminga and a bunch of other, I mean... Jalen Green's Jaylen there, Green's Dacia Nix is there. Yeah, and yep. so like having, um, we don't, I don't think we know exactly what's going on with those games being available and everything else, but I mean, it's exciting to, for those players to get the opportunity and to get some money, but we'll have to kind of see for evaluation purposes what happens. Yeah, I mean, it, it, I think everyone, even across the NBA, is still a little bit unclear on how that whole situation is going to look. Um, are they going to play in the abbreviated G League season that's going to occur? Um, are they not going to? It's it's very interesting that, and no one really has a true answer to it yet. Um, but there's chance like we see a lot of them. There's a chance that we see very little of them. So I will be very uh, locked in on that to find out how this entire thing looks long term. Thankfully, we will have plenty of time to talk about this, talk about the 21 class moving forward. So I'm going to thank you for taking the time and absolute pleasure as always. I'm trying to think if there's anything we didn't hit, did we? Did I mean, we... we could have talked for two hours about the the free agency and the other off season, but you know, like we each have spaces for that. I'll I'll leave you I'll leave you with an open thing for that. Of the non draft stuff, what stuck out the most to you? What stuck out the most to me of the non draft free agency stuff? Probably, I really liked what Atlanta did. I kind of mentioned them earlier. Uh, I love that they added depth. I love that they seem to have like established a role for Danilo Gallinari coming off the bench, uh, according to Travis Schlenk. Um, Chris Dunn is literally exactly what they needed as a defensive guard to play next to Trey Young occasionally, uh, or to you know maybe even sometimes take over as a backup point guard. Although uh, they hopefully won't have to do that all that often because Bogdan Bogdanovich can also play as like a ball handler occasionally. So like I. I kind of really love what Philadelphia did. I think that they really, really significantly helped themselves going forward uh, or Atlanta. Uh, I'm sorry. I, I think that they really, really helped themselves going forward. I think Philadelphia did a great job kind of reshaping the outlines of their roster. And look, like a lot of people are shitting on the Gordon Hayward signing for Charlotte. I Yeah, I think that they probably overpaid, like no doubt, but this is a team that has a lot of cap space going forward because their books clear out following uh, this season even more. And getting a secondary playmaker who can fill into a role uh, as like their second guy next to LaMelo Ball offensively uh, and can take some of the burden off of Devontae Graham, I think that that really, really helps them developmentally. Like, yeah, it looks ridiculous that they're going to be paying essentially $45 million for or $40 million for Gordon Hayward over the next few years once you also account for the fact that they stretched Nick Batum for it. But given the fact that their cap sheet's pretty clean and given the fact that they really need some help developmentally, like, I don't think I hate that move as much as everyone else seemed to. It's a challenging one because I think that the, like, you could phrase that in terms of opportunity cost, that the opportunity cost for the Hornets is less high. They have more money than they really had anything to do with. But the problem is Gordon Hayward, he might be the right player at this exact moment, but... 
they're paying him a lot more over the next few years, and that's a real challenge. And so they're paying Hayward a little bit less, but not that much less, than Bogdanovich and Gallinari combined. And Bogdanovich and Gallinari combined, better players, all that. And the additional cost of having to add that stretch. I mean, Danny, it's almost $10 million a year less than those two combined. Yeah. Like, that's not that's not just like a small amount. Yeah, that's true. I guess because Gallo's making 20 and Bogey's making 18. Um, But if you also factored in the Batum stretch, then it's actually pretty close. But yeah, anyway. that's true. Um, But with, the, with Hayward, after a couple of years, you know, especially with the injury risks that he presents that it's a a real challenge for, you know, if you want to try to move on from him. So I I think that it's less, that move is less catastrophic in terms of the practical effects. I still don't like the process of it just because the Hornets were one of the worst teams in the league last year. And I think that Hayward doesn't make them that much better. And so it's kind of like, you know, just just take your lumps for another year or two. But I understand it more from that. I think there's a difference between understanding and supporting. And for me, that's kind of where this is. Um, I will also, so I will echo your praise of Philadelphia. I thought that they got better on the court and got cheaper off of it. And that's a really yeah. important double. Also, they added a very good general manager, which helped make a lot of that happen. And I think that works reasonably well. And I, so my, my bigger frustration, and I'm not saying all of these are equal because for example, I like what the Hawks did and I don't like some of the other ones, but one of the reasons that players got paid this year more than I expected was those kind of lower class teams in terms of team quality right now that had cap space just spent it. I mean, the Pistons going yeah. after Jeremy Grant and Mason Plumley and not really, you know, the getting Deadman so they could stretch him for over five years as opposed to Snell over three and all, all those things. And so like, what's frustrating to me is those teams, the Hornets and the Bl- and the P- Pistons in particular. Well, and they, they move four second round picks. In the like Canard a few deal. of which could be really valuable, plus Luke Kennard to get the 19th overall pick. I, like, I actually liked that deal originally when I thought it was like just straight up Kennard for the 19th pick. But I mean, to move four second rounders long term for that, like what the fuck are you doing? Yeah, it, it is a very real a very real problem. And what what bothers me in some ways more so for the Pistons, especially because they're less flexible moving forward than for the Hornets, is they're not good now. Like they spent yeah. all this money to be okay in a bad conference, but okay probably, you know, like it could be enough to get them in just because you don't know how health is going to go or where everything's but like the there, there is no way they're good enough to make the playoffs next year. It would stun me. It like basically the idea would be maybe they're the tenth best team in the East, and then two other teams are way more hurt than they are, and so they slide in. You know that sort of a that sort but of the, a style. Are they that though? No, like, no, not right now. No, they're. I would say they're probably like twelfth or thirteenth off the top of my head. I actually was working on my tiers before, but I haven't finished it yet. Yeah, like Boston, Brooklyn, Philly, Toronto. Uh, I would still put Chicago ahead of them. Uh, Atlanta, Washington. Yeah, you know, Indiana, Milwaukee, Atlanta, Miami, that's nine. I think I would put Charlotte ahead of them as 10. And yeah, I mean, like if Washington has John Wall and Gordon or John Wall and Bradley Beal and John Wall looks as good as what people says he does, that's 11. So they're probably 12 at the best. And that's not including Orlando, who has just been incredibly well coached over the last few years and probably will find a way to overcome what I think is a somewhat uh, deficient talent roster. So let's go, let's go on ahead and say that they're 12th or 13th in the East. 
Yeah, and when you consider that 14 and 15 are two teams that just that actually kind of embraced where they were and just understand that they're bad and that's okay with the Knicks and the the Knicks and the Cavs, that's a really bad place to be after you've committed what they have. Yeah, I, I did not. I did not like the Jeremy Grant deal. I did not like the Mason Plumley deal. I I just don't. I, I don't know what they're doing. I, I frankly just do not really know what they're doing. So then the the other team I wanted to to talk about a little bit for praise is. Phoenix now. Oh I, yeah, yeah. I you know I'm not. Uh, you know you know the Jalen Smith pick better than I do. But Jay Crowder adds depth to the rotation, but is not so good that it's going to be a problem if Cam Johnson starts over him. If Cam Johnson is better, they have. They, they don't have a ton of center depth, but I would say everywhere else they're doing pretty well. And Chris Paul gives them a level of competence that I think is going to be big. And they can also they'll have minutes for Devin Booker to do his thing. And I. You know, I don't think they lock themselves into a playoff spot or anything like that, especially considering how much talent Portland added. But yeah. that considering the cost, like the opportunity cost wasn't like, you know, what they gave up wasn't that high for, for Phoenix. And yeah, they didn't they couldn't get like a twenty million or twenty five million dollar guy this year, next year with cap space. I don't really know who that guy was, and Chris Paul's better than that player would have been anyway. Yeah, totally agree. Chris Paul is probably a top ten player in the league still, maybe a top fifteen player in the league still. Um, you run the risk of the soft tissue injuries with Chris Paul and sure. look in a condensed season, he's probably not going to play more than 50 games, right? Either due to injury or due to management at the end of the day. Right. Yeah. Guess so. Uh, so at the end of the day, like I just kind of look at it and I'm wondering what is their ceiling with Chris Paul and Devin Booker? If what Devin Booker showed in the bubble is real. And I kind of think it is like, there's a world where they can jump into the same tier, if not higher, than what Oklahoma City was in last year. Oh, absolutely. Especially I mean, with Clay Thompson being out now. The, the challenge for Phoenix is that they're facing a stronger Western Conference as things look right now than than last year. Than last year, just because of the injuries for both the Warriors and the Blazers. But we know the Warriors are already facing another injury, and it you know they're very well. And we don't want it to happen, but there very well could be additional ones in the West as well. And I mean, who yeah, the hell knows but, what's happening with Houston? Yeah, that's what I was going to say. Like, we said this last year as well, coming into the year, where, like, oh, the West is like a monster. And it was really good, don't get me wrong. But, like, I, I don't know. It's not, <laughs> it's not like overwhelming, right? Well, I think that the difference this year, fire. like, the Golden State's hurt. The difference this year is that I think that there, a lot of teams are trying, and very few teams are like overtly bad. And so yeah. I think that's going to be a challenge. I, there's this idea uh, that I think is is really valuable. Of like, can you, you're not necessarily going to be a good playoff team, but at least you can kind of beat the run-of-the-mill teams day by day. But if those run-of-the-mill teams are a little bit stronger in the West, it could be a challenge. You know, I'm not saying Minnesota's great or San Antonio necessarily, but they're competitive and I could see them winning plenty of games, like, you know, kind of on the margins, especially like when the, other team is on a back to back. I like, a, you know, San Antonio's backcourt is really exciting. I think that this could be, for the Spurs, this could be a year where even if their record isn't great, that you're still getting more excited about the future. And that's not a bad place to be. And and I think that, that you know, that the San Antonio being patient this offseason, granted, they were helped by not having a ton of financial flexibility because they didn't move any of their veterans. That just kind of understanding where you are and not rushing it can be sometimes that's that's totally fine. That's you don't need to do more than that. Yeah, no, totally agree. Like, I think that San Antonio is in a good spot here going forward. They made another really, really solid, strong draft pick. 
Um, they have a really fun backcourt. Like they're in a good spot at the end of the day. Like they're in a really, really smart, solid position. So I think that if I was them, I'd just keep going with the status quo, be competitive. And then, you know, hopefully uh, one of these guys really, really hits. And then you can kind of get off to the races. The, the thing with them, though, is that they're, they're going to have to move LaMarcus Aldridge at some point here, right? Like It feels that way. I mean, they could just let him go. But I, I'm imagining that somebody will have an interest in having have, bringing him in, hoping that Aldridge will help their team. Yeah, like... It, I was kind of wondering, like, Boston has this massive trade exception now. Like, that that's kind of an interesting one. Yeah, but the problem is Boston is hard capped now because of the, mm, uh, the Tristan Thompson right. thing. I think that's going to be more of a piece that Ainge has for next offseason, which could be valuable, to be sure. Yeah. Um, well, we'll have to see, though. I wonder if they knew that they were going to lose Hayward and be able to negotiate this massive trade exception if they would have used that full mid-level on Thompson. That's a, a really good question, especially because Boston hasn't done anything with the biannual yet. So yeah, it would have been it would have been a real challenge. But I think Tristan Thompson has already signed and all that, so they and they can't go back on it. I don't think. No, they're not. They're definitely not going to do that anyway. Yeah, but that so. is, that is a real it is a real challenge. Uh, I think that's probably enough for now. Uh, thank you so much as always, and that's a lot a lot to sift through. And I thought I'm pretty pleased with how we did. Yeah, I think we did okay, Danny. Thanks. Thanks again to Sam Vecini for taking the time to come on. You can, of course, read his excellent work at The Athletic. You can also listen to the Game Theory podcast that he does, highly recommended. And you can follow him, if you don't already, on Twitter at Sam Vecini, under, Sam underscore Vecini, S-A-M underscore V-E-C-E-N-I-E. Love having him on, one of my favorite guests. And we needed to do a lot of different things here, and I think that, that we accomplished that. And also, you can, if you want to listen to more of Sam on the 2020 draft there, or read his incredible work there, both at The Athletic, and you can listen to podcasts all over the place. He is excellent there. His draft guide was an invaluable resource for me. I can't even remember how many words it was, but I think it was over 100,000. And I didn't go through all of it, but I went through a fair amount of it to get a little bit more familiar with some of the prospects that I hadn't watched in full. And he does just, in terms of volume and quality, does such great work, and I'm honored to have him as a colleague. And there will still be plenty to cover in this space at Real GM Radio over the next little while. Want to get into the season that is to come. Probably won't do as much recapping the offseason. That's something that Nate and I do so much on Dunked On, and we're moving so quickly into the next season that I don't get to really dwell as much as I would in in other years. I mean, we're getting preseason in just a couple weeks, and then real season really soon, so I probably won't do as much there. I love the division-by-division previews, the capsules, and those presumably are not coming back for this year. I may do some sort of modifications. I don't know exactly yet, but That's a great reason to subscribe and download every episode because then whenever this pops into your inbox, you will have it. You don't have to worry about seeing a tweet from me. And, you know, sometimes these come out on Sunday. Sometimes they come out on Tuesdays. It just depends on my availability, guests, and everything else. So subscribing, downloading every episode, great way to support the show and for you to make sure that you get it. Also, spread the word, word of mouth, you know, whether that's writing a review in the podcast player you're choosing, Apple Podcasts, really wherever, just like subscribing wherever you see fit, but also just telling people you like the show, whether it's a specific episode or the show in general can be really wherever. If that's friends of yours, that can be like Reddit or wherever, wherever, wherever it is, Twitter, wherever it is that you think people will see it. If you think they would like it, I appreciate that. If 
for this show and really any other that has them. And if you want to get more of my work, I have more written pieces coming out. I've done a bunch of different things at The Athletic during the offseason, and I have a new piece that should be coming out on either Monday or Tuesday, depending on how quickly it goes through editorial, which is going to be pretty fun. They have a Black Friday deal going on as well, which you can check out. I think that runs all the way through Monday, Cyber Monday. And it's great if you're not a subscriber right now. Then also, Dunked On, whether we're talking the free one or Dunked On Prime, Nate and I are putting out an absolute ton of material right now. And that's not going to stop really until the season starts. And then obviously we're on the season schedule. So there will be a lot there. And it's been fun. It's been a lot. You know, I had had a few moments where it just, just feels like the hits keep coming. And we don't know even if the kind of the off-season stuff is done, whether there's going to be another big star trade or not. But... I appreciate the support. I appreciate everybody who's been, you know, following my work and saying nice things. And and if you have any feedback, good, bad, or indifferent, the best way for me to see it is NBA at gmail.com because Twitter can be ephemeral, so can pretty much everything else. But if it's in my inbox, it'll sit there until I read it and I have a special place where they go. And I really do appreciate that. I respond when I can, but I promise I will read it. I do that every day. So that is enough for now. Thank you so much for listening. Take care and make it a great day.